0: Lord Jesus we we worship you, we want to kneel down around your around you and just hear from you uh, this afternoon Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom Lord uh, I thank you for the opportunity to just share with so many people who have given their lives to you and Lord uh, you're going to do wonderful things through the efforts and through the outpouring of love from the people who are in this room and at this conference. And uh, I just, uh, I'm humbled, uh, and I just pray that somehow you would use uh, this discussion to edify and build up and inspire in some way, Lord. Thank you for being here. Amen. Um, You know, it's a little funny. Most, a lot of you have seen my face, obviously, in the news. Uh, it's a little embarrassing, you know. I have colleagues here who've, Accomplished far more, had a bigger impact, and uh, I make the biggest mistake of my life and get sick, and I'm, I'm, I'm on the news. So, anyway, but uh, you know, it's a window, it's an opportunity, and uh, we're just trying to let the Lord shine uh, through that window if we can. Um, I'm going to share actually about. Uh, unintended consequences in the Ebola epidemic. Because I think whenever you have one of these crises, you see this where uh, group A takes action B uh, intending to achieve outcome C and they end up with X. And then depending on how it's dealt with, sometimes they just proceed with, uh, with action B and they continue to get outcome X and no adjustment is made. Hopefully, you know, my message to you is Better be ready to adjust. Um, I spent the month of August in Liberia, and really most of this talk is going to be about what happened before August 29th when I got my fever. Um, So if you're here to hear me talk about my own Ebola uh, case, you might be disappointed. Um, So objectives, understand ways that attempts to help can have unintended consequences, understand problems that are caused by cultural misunderstandings, relationship problems, or economic problems. Describe why long-term Christian missions are in a good position to avoid or to understand and compensate for these unintended consequences. That's all a lot of words. That's very long. This is the the real take-home message. I'll be satisfied as long as you leave with this. You will get it wrong the first time. We all do. Good relationships and willingness to change course will help you succeed. Got that? Uh, So I've got five major learning opportunities that we're going to look at, each one quite briefly. Uh, Finding the right triage protocol. Giving financial incentives to Ebola treatment unit workers. Health system collapse. Violent reactions to interventions by missionaries and aid workers. And finally, uh, when efforts to provide services to communities actually disempower them. Um, The triage protocol. So I arrived in Liberia on August 4th. At that time, all the hospitals were closed in Monrovia. One and a half million people, no major health facility open. Women in labor, nowhere to go. Kid with malaria, nowhere to go. Why was this? Well, as the Ebola epidemic became exponential in July and really took off, every single hospital had people, had staff members, some more than others, who died from Ebola. And when that happened, when staff members got sick, the hospital said, well, we've got to close down for disinfection. In many cases, not all, but in many cases, the hospital staff said, well, we have to stay away now. We've been exposed We have to stay away for 21 days. We can't go back to work. So you had this three-week window while the hospitals closed down. Um, Some healthcare workers were saying, we need more financial compensation. You've got to give us something extra. We're taking this kind of risk. Look at the kind of risk we're taking. Some people just weren't going to come to work no matter what. My best friend just died from Ebola. You think I'm coming back to work? And they were just staying home. So that was all happening all at the same time. The WHO came in and said, we're going to go around and train all the hospitals as they're trying to reopen. We're going to do training at all the hospitals on our WHO triage protocol. So they brought us the triage protocol that had been developed in previous Ebola epidemics in Congo and Uganda and Sudan and other places. And this is basically how the triage protocol looked. Now, it's more complicated than this, but I'm just trying to make it simple. Is there a history of contact? That's the top branch point on the triage protocol. Is there a history of contact with an Ebola patient or a recent visit at a funeral, some exposure that looks suspicious to you for possible Ebola? If it's yes, then all they need is a fever and you send them to the Ebola unit as a suspected case to get tested to see if they're an Ebola patient. But if there's no history of contact, you wait, you don't just go with the fever. It has to be a fever plus three other symptoms before you declare that person a suspected case. This is the WHO protocol that they trained us on first week in August. Anybody anybody see any issues with this protocol? Okay, we've got one issue. Nobody's going to say yes to the first question, right? And what else? Well, sure. Now, we all know that we're going to be putting some people in the Ebola unit, the suspect case side, who don't have Ebola, and that's okay. The, 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 the suspect side is handled in such a way that there's no cross-contamination between patients in there. We're, people are very careful about that, obviously. If you put somebody in there and you give them Ebola, that would be the worst possible outcome. So there's, it's a kind of a – the nurse goes in, deals with one patient, and then – goes out or goes to the confirmed side, but doesn't go to another patient on the suspect side. That's the protocol to prevent that. Okay. Any other problems with it? Nobody's going to have contact. contact right. Or we're not going to know they had contact. It's too right. They might not know. Okay. Let's So let's go through it a little bit. So this protocol misses Ebola cases for two reasons. The first one is the one you all mentioned. On the first visit, at least in Liberia, you can't get an accurate history of the, the fact that the the sister in law died a week ago because they're all aware of the stigma and the, you know, they all are thinking, oh my gosh, if I tell them that my sister in law died, then they'll just throw me right in that Ebola unit and I'll die. So I'm not going to tell them. And they'll tell you on day two or day three, but they won't tell you on arrival. So that was the first problem. The second problem, which was actually more of the problem, is that patients with an altered immune status or with comorbidities, do not present with classic signs and symptoms. We discovered over the course of August, I discovered personally, over the course of the month of August, that pregnant women, at term in labor, might have Ebola and will not have, may not run a fever, may not have vomiting or diarrhea, may not have classic signs and symptoms. They may just be weak. That may be all you get, is a, a woman who appears very weak and listless. No temp, no vomiting, no diarrhea, just weak, and, uh, or this kind of thing. You can imagine a patient with advanced HIV might not present with classic signs and symptoms when they also come down with Ebola. Infants, an out-of-control diabetic, an elderly person. And, you know, the old protocol was made for small epidemics in rural areas. They had a couple hundred cases. I think five, about 500 was the maximum And, you know, how many of these patients are you going to have in there? Maybe 10 or 15, but maybe not enough to throw off the whole thing. But when you have thousands of cases, suddenly you have dozens of these, and it's enough to uh, really cause problems. So here's our new triage protocol, which basically says, are you completely 100% well? Then we'll consider you to be low risk. And if you have anything (laughs) wrong with you at all... (laughs) We are going to gown up for you and do your Ebola test and wear, wear, a, wear full PPE for you. So that's ELWA's new protocol. That's how we're doing it because we, we just can't continue to have healthcare workers and physicians coming down with, uh, Ebola. So any questions on the first one? Everybody got it? We had to readjust. Um, Second one, economic factors. Um, The original plan by the Ministry of Health is let's pay all the Ebola treatment unit workers special hazard pay to encourage them to sign up for this risky, uncomfortable job where you get all in the full suit and you sweat like crazy and you're very uncomfortable and weak. Let's incentivize that. And so they set up a pay scale. They They had international donors. They set up a pay scale. They were paying people three to four times what a normal nurse would make to work in the Ebola treatment unit. A lot, you know, and they and they've got staff. There they are, suited up, ready to go. What's the unanticipated consequence? Well, first of all, the Ebola risk for healthcare workers is actually just as high, if not higher, in the general hospital setting or an emergency room setting as it is in the ETU. When you're in the ETU, every patient encounter happens with full PPE on, right? When you're in the hospital, that's not the case. You can't work a whole shift. You can't work a 12-hour shift in the hospital in PPE. You you know, you'd collapse. So you've got this issue where the risk and benefit are not really equal. Uh, and so you find other start- nurses start re- starting to request Bonus pay, extra pay—you got people staying home from work—and this problem, this economic problem, has been a big factor in the health system collapse that we see going on in both Liberia and Sierra Leone. And I'm not as aware of it in Guinea. I don't think it has happened as much in Guinea. But both Liberia and Sierra Leone, majority of healthcare institutions are just closed uh, all the way through from August until now. And here they are making their uh, displeasure known um, so as I said that uh, that was one of the factors leading to health system collapse. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about some of the other issues. You know, the original idea by the strategizers working to put together a plan to, to uh, defeat the Ebola epidemic was, well, we'll set up Ebola treatment units, um, we'll isolate and care for Ebola patients well, and uh, that will reduce the risk of other people getting Ebola, the death rate will drop, and uh, no special intervention is needed for hospitals. This was the, the plan. Um, The unintended consequence, I already sort of reviewed it with you at the beginning, goes something like this. Healthcare workers contract Ebola from working in the emergency room and getting exposed to a case. Often just one healthcare worker starts out and then when they come to work and they start to feel a little sick, they say to their friend, come start my IV, can you run my lab test? And you wouldn't want to gown up and put on all that stuff just to deal with your best friend. That would be offensive or... Stigmatizing, so they tend to just go off in the corner and help their friend out. Start the IV line. Let me give you a drip. Maybe you'll feel better. Uh, the lab guy comes and does some tests with a minimum of precautions, and then that one healthcare worker tends to infect, you know, a whole bunch of healthcare workers. We've had over 200 healthcare workers infected in Liberia. Over 100 uh, die. About 10, 10 to 11 physicians now I'm aware of, and and. Uh, the rest, nurses. Um, each time a healthcare worker in a health facility die or gets sick with Ebola, they close that facility for disinfection. It's this cycle that goes on. In, uh, in August and September, actually, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Hospital in Monrovia was one of the best functioning facilities. But then in mid-September, they had some more cases, and they closed again. And I, as far as I know, they still haven't reopened from that one. Um so it's very, uh, very, very difficult. Um, you know, I was quite surprised. When when I when I was in Liberia in August, I was thinking, well, things will get reopened. Within the next month or two, everything will get back to normal. I was, I, you know, it is shocking me that here we are, November, and still all the health facilities are at least – nobody's fully functional. Some have a clinic open or they're just doing some normal OB care um so it's it's really a rough situation, like St Joseph's Catholic Hospital, which is really the number two health facility in Monrovia, a large facility about three times bigger than e l w a where I work uh, and they have been completely shut since since July. Maybe you heard about um, priests being ferried to uh, Spain who had ebola they they were the uh administrators of this hospital and uh, so they lost their they, they lost over 20 staff, including their core leadership. They were in real denial about what this was at the beginning. And uh, this, this is uh, the problem we're facing. Um, in the midst of health system collapse, why is ELWA still open? Um, I actually, the first, and the number one answer to that is the grace of God. I should have put that in there that's the number one answer is the grace of God there's really there's no there's really no other way to say it and some of you heard Dr. Debbie's talk yesterday um Debbie Eisenhut and the other thing is that she I mean the Lord using her got us prepared uh and ready before Ebola came to Monrovia whereas many of the other facilities just said well we're not going to accept Ebola patients but the trouble is people don't come with a label I have it. I don't have it. Those labels are not uh, available yet. Um, So why are we still open? Number one is willingness to make changes. Uh, We now have a single triage point. We used to have one of these sort of open campus kind of buildings where the ER door is over here and the the visitor's door is here and the, the dental door is here and the doctor's office door is here and the lab door is there. And so you had people approaching the hospital and sitting on benches outside the hospital in kind of a disorganized way, and, you know, there was no way to control that. Well, now we have uh, built – you can see this is, uh, this is actually the side where the emergency room door is. Under that roof is the emergency room door, but we've just fenced that off now so nobody goes straight to the emergency room. And now this is the front of the hospital, and you see we've put this tarp up. And now that, that door that you see in the middle – That's the only way to get in. Can we knock off the lights up front at all? Is there a way to knock off these lights? Um, That door there that you see is the only way to get in and out of the hospital. Of course, we have another gate that we can open if we need to. Um, But that's closed most of the time. This is the only way. Every staff member, every visitor, every patient comes in, gets their temperature scanned, gets evaluated, gets it figured out, you know, are you, are you going where you need to go? Do you need to go to the emergency room? Do you need to go to the clinic? Do you need to get admitted? That's all, that's all happening right at this gate um, so that nobody gets in with a fever or without, you know, or do you need to go to the Ebola treatment unit across, which is just 100 yards down the driveway uh, from here. There's another view of the, the triage gate. Um, second thing, uh, better access to testing. This has helped us a lot. We now have, as of mid-access, as of mid-August, uh, the CDC actually moved their mobile lab onto our ELWA compound, mainly to service the big MSF unit, ELWA 3. Uh, but it's right there, and we can access it too. So we now get test results within. A range between like five and eighteen hours, depending on what time, you know if it 's daytime, we usually get a result in five hours if it 's at night, it, we get it you know the next day around noon when they run their morning uh, labs. but this has made a huge difference being able to get timely results when I got there first week of August, it was sometimes overnight, but sometimes it could be as long as two, three four days at the big government lab down uh, an hour down the road, so this has been. Huge for us. Um, We have paid some incentives to staff. We've had to bump up things a little bit just to uh, level the playing field, as they would say. Um, Been a huge amount of dialogue, just meeting together, talking together, hashing things out. Lots of time in prayer, continuing to have our daily devotional times, times around the word. I think, you know, having a staff who are believers and who who really understand what it means to love their neighbors, has made a huge difference compared to other facilities. It's just a, they got that foundation underneath there, and that, that makes a difference. Praise God. Um, let me tell you a little story. This, uh, this is Dr. John Fankhauser, my, my uh, colleague, who's uh, really been doing uh, wonderful work over there for these last couple of months. And he wrote recently with a story where a pregnant woman arrived. Now, apparently ELWA right now is the only hospital in Monrovia dealing with sick, pregnant women. They'll show up at another facility, they'll say, you have a fever, go to ELWA. (laughs) They don't want to mess with them, because they're worried. So they received this woman who uh, had a fever, full-term pregnancy, um, not feeling well, lightheaded, dizzy, this kind of thing. Um, They were able to do her test, It was a daytime test, I think, and they got it back about five hours later. During that time, she actually had a convulsion, had to get some mag sulfate, had to get stabilized. Then they got her test back. It was negative. Uh, and they were able to do a cesarean for her and, you know, five, six days later, send home a healthy mom and baby. And that's a real, that's a real success story and that's a real win compared to what was happening in August, which was when almost everybody had a, a fetal demise by the time they even arrived at our at our door, so uh, this is exciting. Um, okay, let's move on. Another thing you've probably read about or heard about in the news: violent reactions to aid workers and, and uh, missionaries. Um, there have even been deaths in uh, in Guinea. When a team enters a village, usually with a couple vehicles, sometimes with health workers, journalists, different uh, people on, in the in the group. Uh, they're either there to remove dead bodies, or to pick up sick patients, or to carry out community education, and they wind up—they uh, <clears throat> wind up with a violent reaction from that community because of suspicion, ignorance, lack of trust. Um, there have been all kinds of rumors flying around rural areas of Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone. Uh, you know, these foreigners brought the disease here. They're doing it so, they can, so their drug companies can make more money. I've read that in the Liberian Press, that, that the Ebola crisis was allowed to go on longer because the West wanted a stimulus for, for drug companies and vaccine manufacturers. Um, there are stories going around that organs are being harvested in the Ebola treatment units. Because, you know, I mean, you have to think about it from their point of view, right? Your relative goes in there when they have a fever, they send them in as a suspected case, They look relatively well, not too ill. Ten days, you know, a week later, they're coming out in a body bag and you never get to see them because they take the body and cremate it. Uh, You know, and you're thinking, well, what did they do to my relative in there? You know, there are no visitors allowed in there for obvious reasons. So it's a totally opaque system for them. They don't understand it. They don't see what's happening. And it's just really difficult uh, to get over these suspicions and fears and the rumors that are flying around. Um, let me, t- So let me c- tell a couple stories. So first one is at ELWA when they started to build ELWA 3. Uh, the youths, the young people from the neighborhood came around and started throwing rocks. They were threatening that they were going to burn the place down in the middle of the night. Um, and actually the work had to stop. Uh, and finally through a combination of sort of diplomacy on one side where we, ELWA and MSF and the Ministry of Health all went to the community and called together the leaders and had dialogue and discussion and tried to explain the facts about Ebola and that no, all the sewage was going to be dealt with on site. There was nothing going to be just running. I think they were afraid that, you know, runoff was just going to run from the unit into their community, um, and some of those things, but then the combination of that with some, actually some force. I mean, the, the Liberian National Police and the uh, Army had to be called in to uh, be around the edge of this area while they did the construction. Um, you know, through those things, they were able to get the unit built eventually, but there was quite a delay uh, caused by this uh, not-in-my-backyard kind of mindset that was going on in our in our neighborhood. Uh, let me tell you a second story. This comes from a Samaritan's Purse from a a good friend of mine who uh, told me this story just last week. Um, But this has been in the press, too, and you've probably heard about it. I just wanted to get the details right. So they uh, sent a team. They had heard about a – they were doing this kind of mobile work up in uh, Lofa County, sending uh, vehicles out to either pick up sick patients and bring them to the treatment unit or to, to help dispose of dead bodies for villages where somebody had died. And they heard that somebody had died in a certain village. And they sent the vehicle with the team to that village. Well, it was a long road with like three towns along it. And the, the dead body was in the third one. Well, as they passed village one, village one people called the people at village two, said the, the white people are coming, the you know the uh, NGO people are coming. They put up a barricade. And then, uh, and then they put up a barricade too. So they trapped this vehicle in between these two villages. And then, so when they got here, they turned around, they went back, and then they met another barricade. And so they and they smashed the vehicle, they smashed the windows, they slashed the tires. The people had to run into the bush and hide for a long time. I don't know exactly how long before they could finally come out. And another Samaritan's Purse vehicle had to come and rescue them uh, later on. This was quite a uh, standoff, and it was just the same suspicion. Now it was interesting because actually SP wasn't expecting that response because they'd been in many other communities. And had not had any issues. But the other communities they'd been to were places where they'd been working and doing development work and doing projects, community health type projects for the last several years. And so they were known and trusted already. And I think they just sort of, you know, nobody thought, oh, this is not a place we've been before. We better watch out. They didn't think about that ahead of time. But because they had never been to this community before and the trust wasn't there, you know, this happened. Thank God nobody was, was hurt. So long-term relationships are very, very helpful in these situations. And I think this is a lot of what you see happening. Some NGO comes in, in the midst of the crisis, they don't have that cultural understanding. They don't have, I know you, you know me, we know each other, remember from last time. They don't have that history it's much harder to make progress, um, and even in Guinea, there's a terrible story about a team that went in just to do community education, and eight members of that team were killed with rocks and machetes and dumped in a latrine. Um, you know, so it can really reach serious levels of violence. And the, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer for this one except that the less you know that community, the more, the more you have to send little feelers and little little messages and try and get get a sense that things are going to be okay before you go in. Um, And finally, disempowered communities. Um, You know, the government of Liberia in July was trying to ramp up their response to Ebola. And one of the things they did, they established a national Ebola crisis team. Um, They, you know, they took some high profile people and put them on it. These go-getters and people who could take action and, You know, they they wanted to do things in Liberia. They tend to want to do things at the national level rather than at the community level. They like uh, centralizing things, so they set up the hotline. Anybody with any cell service, all they had to do was call 4455, and they get the hotline. And uh, they could say, you know, my neighbor died. Please come up, come pick up this body and safely dispose of it so we don't get Ebola. Or if they had a sick patient in their house, they could say, you know, my wife is sick. Please pick her up. And take her because the other option, you know, is to call a taxi, right? And contaminate the car and perhaps spread the virus to other people on the way. So it's, you know, it's a better, right? It sounds good. It sounds great. The plan sounded great. You know, you got ambulances out there, um, have a central hotline, a dispatcher, make use of it. it. Sounds like a great system. But the trouble was, these ambulance and burial teams were totally overwhelmed by the load. They didn't have enough. They didn't have enough resources. And so you had people waiting. You had people waiting for sometimes a week or ten days for the burial team to show up and carry their dead body away. And so you have communities that have been told, look up to government, we'll take care of this. But then you don't come through, and so then there's this passive, resentful, angry buildup feeling going on And so this is why like um, Samaritan's Purse right now has uh, really shifted gears on their response to Ebola and is going in and doing community education and equipping communities, giving out gloves and gowns and bleach and soap and supplies and things and doing training, extensive training in communities about how to cope with these things yourself because they've just seen that the resources aren't there on a nationwide government level and something needs to be done on a community level. So, you know, that's sort of one approach and hopefully it's going to work out well as a response. So what are our conclusions? Always look out for unintended consequences and uh, be willing to reverse course or adjust. Pray and remain open to the Holy Spirit. Relationships are key. If you're not a long-term person there, try to find somebody who is, who you can connect with, who can tap you into their network and get you some of that trust, let some of that trust rub off on you. Um, uh, Let me uh, wrap up just by saying uh, we would love you to join us in prayer, S-I-M, in in prayer for the work that we're doing in Liberia. Uh, Feel free to visit helpebola.org, which is for uh, donations or for prayer. And also uh, feel free to come and visit SIM's booth, and uh, we'd love to talk more. Um, And now I'm actually going to uh, turn things over to my dear friend Thomas Showa, who's a Liberian serving right now with SIM in the nation of Niger. He's the administrator at the Danja Leprosy Hospital. It has a longer name than that, but I just know it as the Danja Leprosy Hospital, and uh, Thomas is going to share a testimony uh, with us because he's a Liberian and and, uh, I just felt that what he had to share would speak to all of our hearts.
1: Thank you for giving
0: me the opportunity to share. Uh Uh-oh, wait. Thomas, I need to give you this other mic. This is the uh, recording mic. So that it'll...
1: Is it working? Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, the unintended consequences. I okay, thank you. Um, I was saying to some people downstairs that it is a difficult thing to say, but my family knows that the first Ebola case, the, the first person to die of Ebola or the first family member was my paternal uncle. My uncle was involved in farming and selling cocoa and coffee beans. And he went into Guinea, Conakry. I come from Foya in Liberia. Debbie, Dr. Debbie talked about Foya uh, yesterday. And so there is a people group called the KISSI, over three million people in the three countries, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And they were divided into three nations during the scramble and partitioning of Africa, but they have maintained strong ties. So there are three principal market days in these three countries. On Wednesday in Gegedu, Guinea, and then on Saturday in Liberia, in Foya District where I come from, and then on Sunday in another place called Quendu in Sierra Leone. So you have the same group of people going around in the cycle. So this is how this thing just got out of hand because and you're talking about very porous borders. A tropical rainforest. You cannot mend. Even developed countries find it difficult to, to mend their borders. Not to talk about you know, in, in a place like that. So um, my uncle picked up this thing from the market. If you have been to Africa, or typical rural market, everybody robs against everybody. Against everybody. So he he got home, infected his wife, and then three children. So in a matter of a week, the whole family was wiped out. So, so I am there in Niger, working at the mission hospital, and it got to a point that I got afraid to answer my phone because I just kept receiving one bad news after the other. And in a matter of of a month, I had lost like 25 family members. Talking about very close family members because this thing started in my hometown. Yeah. You know, and I never thought I would ever get to the point in my life where I would say to somebody that, You do not go to church. Stop going to church. My father called one day, and he was crying on the phone, and he said, Thomas, you need to talk to your mom because she's going to listen to you. And I said, what's the problem? He said, I have already lost over 10 relatives, and she has lost over 15. But your mom keeps going to all of the church meetings, and now you don't know who is sick, you know, from saliva to sweat and all of that. And I was faced with a very difficult responsibility this is a woman that, since I opened my eyes, she's always in church. And then now, my father said, talk to her to stay home and let's pray at home. And this was very, very difficult. I, I was telling Dr. Rick Selkrat that I had a very bad day last night, a very difficult night. I couldn't sleep last night. I thought I was done with this thing. But when I got here and yesterday I heard Ebola, 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 I I, went, I couldn't sleep. All the memory just, just came back and started seeing all these images of my relatives that have died. So this is a reality, you know. I have been beating so badly about this thing, lost over 25 close family members, no over, you know, 75 to 100 extended family members, and it is still there. People are still dying. Yeah, we... We trust in the Lord for a miracle. Yeah, blah, blah. and we, we thank the law for what is happening so far. You know, there is some semblance of hope, but we're not there yet. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. That's uh... it. Is that okay. Yeah. okay. let right. Let's. Uh... Come on. Come on. I'm going to ask my friend Ray Hutchison to just uh, pray for. Pray for Thomas and for Liberia.
2: Father, we thank you that um, we have the privilege of standing with our brothers and sisters around the world. At all times, and especially during times of great difficulty. Your word says that when one member of the body suffers, they all do. And we stand suffering and in support of our brother Thomas, Lord, and the rest of his family members. We pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with them. And we stand with them and not only... Give lip service to a prayer that says, Lord, stop this illness. But we stand with our hearts united with him and his relatives, just crying out to you, Lord, please end this epidemic in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Thank you that we do have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. And, Lord, we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We stand with our brother Thomas uh, in prayer, Lord, and ask you to please end this. And even in the midst of all the chaos, Lord, to lift high your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Protect the health care workers. Give courage to the members of the church To stand firm in the face of this, to the end that Jesus Christ will be glorified and the people will be edified. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, we have a little time for
0: questions.
3: Doctor, regarding um, service, if someone's led to go over and become a part of the effort to help in West Africa, I'm encountering some difficulty in connecting with an organization uh, that is in-country currently and serving there. Is SIM, as I am, the only organization that has uh, a presence? I'm sorry. A presence uh, in one of the affected countries
0: right now, or are you aware of anyone other than Médecins Sans Frontières who is there right now? Um, yeah, the question is what organizations, what are you asking about? Christian organizations uh, are doing work in the uh, three countries with uh, with Ebola. Now, are you speak, talking specifically about Ebola treatment itself? Correct. Yes. Okay, like even SIN. Uh, SIM's main focus right now, to be honest, is on the general healthcare situation, uh, because we feel right now the number of deaths and the number of uh, losses that people are experiencing from other things is just as high as it is from Ebola at the moment, and we sort of we feel that the Lord has given us a hospital, and we're you know we're we're okay at that, and we somehow seem to have been able to keep it open through this last few months, and we feel like that's where we need to focus. There is a unit that's associated with our hospital, um, but we have not been really putting missionaries in there at the moment. Uh, that might change, I suppose, if, if uh, the needs become such, but uh, right now that's, that's not our uh, focus. Um, I know there are some other Christian organizations in Sierra Leone Doing work as well, but I don't know the details. Like, I'm sorry that I don't have a better uh, sense of that. Um, so I think I, I think it's true. I think M, you know MSF has sort of made themselves the Ebola experts over the years, and so they're the ones that everybody kind of looked to and said, "You guys do this." And uh, it's unfortunate because actually they they were stretched too thin, and that's part of the reason why the uh, epidemic exploded. Thank yeah.
3: Sierra Leone Agape volunteer effort, and um, we do frequent medical mission trips. But we also adapt villages, and um, we end up adapting them until they uh, get their uh, pastor uh, wells and the clinic going, and school and, uh, and the church you know, the whole thing. Our a final approach then is agriculture, and we were barred from going this year in August because of the Ebola. But what we do. We have partner ministries on the ground in there, over in Sierra Leone. We have a Evangelistic Pastor Association Intervarsity Christian Fellowship, which is called Slephus. And they have been the ones going into the villages because we use them for medical trips and uh, they, and also uh, for evangelism. So they're known there. Um, they are not white. And they go in for, for for at first, they were wearing the whole outfits, and people got scared, were running into the bush, would not come forward, and then they decided, hey, forget it. We're just going to go in with a mask and some gloves and try and assure them. Uh, so uh, they, that's what they've been doing and having better success. However, uh, Matthew Brema from Sufis said that some of the village wars were there anywhere from 40 to 200. Now there's only a couple families left because of the Ebola. Um, I, we send merchandise too. So in other words, we start the clinic there. We furnish the clinic. There's a small hospital we've been, uh, sir, you know, supplying with. Uh, I send we send 55 gallon barrel drums of, of medical supplies. But then, and the we, we is not to send money because the has have 3,000 students uh, confined in the dorms. They can't go home. They can't work. They can't go to school. The schools, the classrooms are shut down. So they needed money fo- to buy food. Well, now they don't even have food on the shelves in the stores anymore to buy. So now we started sending 55-gallon barrels that seal plastic barrels with with uh, food, half canned goods and half uh, you know the beans and packaged stuff like that. So consequently. Um, There are all kinds of things you can do to help out, okay? You don't have to go there and be a presence all the time, although it's wonderful. If anybody wants to join us, give me a call. But, uh, yeah, we will be going back again as soon as uh, we are allowed to. Um, Thank you. Well, as you said, pray. And if you want to contribute um, any money toward, it costs us $245 to send a barrel of medical supplies or food. All right? And that's getting the food and the medical supplies free. So it's up to you. If anybody wants to, we're 501c3. That's fine, too. If you want to go with us, do a because evangel- we do evangelism and medical. So you're welcome to join us um, for that, too. We do screen our participants. <laughs> To
2: there. Yes, there are other groups in Syria. I just wanted to say that for people who are interested in going and working in West Africa right now, the CIDI Center for International Disaster Information, uh, I don't know their website URL, but if you look up CIDI, they have. Uh, things on the website that direct you to organizations that are working there right now. And also USAID.gov slash Ebola uh, has a place for healthcare workers to sign up, to get them to, to go, um, and also other information about organizations. There are a lot of faith-based, Christian and faith-based organizations that are working in some way in these three countries. Uh, some of them are doing like Samaritan's Purse is doing with community education and awareness and community centers. Some of them are running Ebola treatment units in that one area where they have their long-term relationships. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that are there, uh, and, and those two websites, CIDI and USAID,
0: are two places to go for uh, that information. Thanks. Also,
3: his comment, so I, I work at Duke and we gave a talk last week with one of the ID doctors from Duke to some West Africans. We have a church there, they asked us to do that. At the end, West Africans were actually, they're also mobilizing a lot of resources themselves uh, to send resources on uh, medicines food. So they're, they're working themselves on their own to do this. just curious if um, they're seeing some positive direction overall with the different countries. But with the Ebola, is it still... Are we still, like, scrambling kind of trying to make sense of what the data is
0: saying? My, my understanding is that the, there are some preliminary signs that the rate of new infections is perhaps declining slightly in Liberia. I think that's unconfirmed. And, uh, you know, People feel like we need to watch a little longer and we shouldn't, like, relax yet. Um, unfortunately, the rate is still increasing rather rapidly in Sierra Leone. Guinea has been more steady, uh, hasn't been up and down as much. Um, so Guinea continues to be a problem, but is a little less intense transmission than, than what's happening in Sierra Leone right now. So I think Sierra Leone is probably the, the hot spot at the moment, whereas, say, in August, it was Liberia.
2: Um, yeah, we have a, uh, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and we, we're part of a community health center that's been building a, a 30-room medical clinic
0: in Koidu, Kono District of Sierra Leone. It's coming operationalized January, so we're going to have a whole complementary
2: of staff there. And um, we will also work with uh, an organization that's... Um, or humanitarian called Wellbody from
0: Boston. And uh, so we partner with them. We have an ambulance on its way. It's only the second ambulance in the whole Kono district. And um, so there are people still on the ground in Sierra Leone.
3: Comment and a question, Rick. Uh, First of all, comment. Many of us really were praying intensely for you, and we just praise God to see you.
0: And I am very aware of how many thousands of people were praying for me, and very grateful. The uh, the, pra- the prayers were effective. So yeah.
3: praise God. The second question, which is hard to answer, but world response was slow uh, in coming alongside um, these countries in this epidemic. There's more being done now. Is it going to be enough? Or do you think, if it's not, what is needed to be able to get
0: control over this? Um, Well, that's a tough question. I think that um, I, I was happy to see, actually, that there was talk of some redeployment of resources, maybe because initial plans that were made in August and September focused almost all the attention on Liberia, which was the worst at that point. Now we're already seeing some perhaps improvement there, and I think they are being flexible about how they deploy resources. Um, you know, I think, I think frankly, that while we may get a handle on the epidemic to some extent, I, I, I suspect the arrival of a vaccine is going to make an absolutely huge difference in terms of healthcare workers' willingness to dig in and deal with this thing. I mean, you still have a lot of healthcare workers who are actually staying home because they're just, you know, they're afraid of getting Ebola. They've been to too many funerals of their colleagues. Um, so I think a vaccine, and, you know, we're we're hearing that trial results may be out as soon as, as April for some of them. Um, so it may take that. Um, the other thing, my biggest concern, I mean, I think we've got a, a big response happening now, a much bigger response, and I think that's, that's really great. And um, it probably, you know, we probably will see some results from this. Uh, it'll take time, but we, I think we will. But my concern is that once the last case of Ebola is over, I mean, this is going to be like recovering from the civil war again. The whole health system has been really depleted. We've lost some of our top – each every all the countries have lost some of their top physicians, their most qualified educators uh, to the Ebola crisis. And it's really going to take continued – Inputs, especially on the training side, to really build up and retrain and find—you know—that's going to take a a prolonged effort of several years. And I'm just my biggest concern is that once the last case of Ebola is hit, everybody's going to go, "Okay, we're done. Everything's good," and uh, we really need to keep keep pushing that. Um, I I had a question. I'm back. What
3: specifically can we be
0: praying for for the Elwa Hospital? Um. Well, thank you. I think uh, number one is safety for the staff, um, wisdom and discernment about about you know about the patients. I, I think number two, actually, my prayer request would be the spiritual ministry. Um, they have a strong spiritual ministry, but I think when everybody's thinking about you know protecting themselves, it's a little harder to remember to also focus on who this is in front of me and. How can I share the love of Jesus with them? Um, so I would say pray for the spiritual ministry. Um, and then pray for a, a couple a couple more uh, well-prepared uh, volunteers to come out and, and, and help us with some, some manpower because we are, we are short-staffed at this point. Um, Dr. John Fankhauser, who's been over there for the last couple months, just continue to pray for him, lift him up. That he'd be uh, refreshed and strong, and uh, so. And I, uh, by the way, you can pray for me. My prayer target is to be back over there in uh, in January. So, thank you.
3: Do you think um, my concern also is yours that once Ebola is over, that people are just going to vanish? Do you do you think there is some hope that these governments have realized that their healthcare systems need to be strengthened? That they really need to invest in them?
0: I, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to uh, put my uh, eggs in that basket. I don't think, unfortunately. Um, you know, they're very bureaucratic, and, bureaucratic, and slow-moving and underfunded. I, 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 I don't put that on any individual person or anything. They—they they don't have a well-funded uh, government system, so they don't really have a lot of extra to put into these kinds of programs that they need to, to build up their own health systems. I think it's uh, I think it's still, you know, and it, the point is though we want, when outside people do come in, we don't want to just come in and do stuff. We want to come in and train and build up. And, you know, and I think as Christians, it's a real opportunity to come in and not only train, but also disciple and mentor people who can practice healthcare, uh, you know, with Christ by their sides. And I think it's a great opportunity for that. Um, I am immune. People have asked me this question actually like so they 're using people survivors as volunteers to do like orphan care within the treatment units where there 's a, a child who 's lost its parents and the kid needs to be held and fed and taken care of they 're using survivors to do that to do that work because they are immune now in my role as a as a physician, I really have to continue to fully protect myself because um, in Liberia, people watch you more than they listen to you, and I really f- I will have to continue to toe the line as far as personal protection because my staff are going to be watching me to see what I do, and uh, so I will continue to do that. But I, you know, they tell me I'm immune. So. <laughs> Probably three or four more questions. Can you tell
2: us uh, a little bit about the uh, origin of the virus itself? Where did it originate? Uh, how is it evolving? Is it evolving? Are there separate strains or different strains of, of the virus itself? What is the atomic or uh,
1: molecular
2: uh, construction of the virus itself? <laughs> wow,
0: well, I think you better go to f- uh, <laughs> Phil. Whose talk is the. Whose talk is the one with the Phil – Fisher. Phil Fisher, I think, is doing a – because that the answer to your question is about an hour long. Um, they, from what I understand, it's fairly stable. They say it's mutated like 55 base pairs over 40 years, which is not bad. So I think it's a pretty stable virus. Nobody knows, I don't think, where it came from yet, but it lives in fruit bats. So don't eat fruit bats. Do you eat fruit bats, Thomas? Can you speak to the orphan situation? Are we seeing large amounts
3: of orphans
0: like with HIV AIDS? My understanding, the two numbers I've heard is that um, from the treatment units where they're keeping statistics, is that there are 1,000 children right now in Liberia who have lost both parents, and I think 4,000 more who've lost one parent that they are keeping tabs of. Uh, And and again, that's probably underreported because most people say that the the true number of fatalities is probably at least double what the reported cases are. So you can probably take those numbers and double them as well. Um, UNICEF, I know, is mounting a big project to do orphan care. Um, That's the main group I know that's focusing on orphans right now in Liberia. And I don't know about the other two countries, but I'm assuming the numbers are similar in in Guinea and Sierra Leone.
2: So, how do you translate this virus into their language um, and tell them about what it is and its pathology? How do you explain to them in a context that they can understand?
0: Um, I think, I mean, this is really a big challenge, and I think it's very important not to be too scientific, not to show people pictures of the photomicrograph of the virus. That doesn't really do that much good. Um, so you explain that you can't see the thing, You cannot see the thing, but it can be in your in your vomit. When you vomit, it can be there. It can be in your in your blood. You know, you you explain where it is, and then you explain the activities that spread it. You know, when 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 you're caring for somebody who's sick, and they, I'm sorry, I'm speaking small Liberian English for you. Um, <laughs> when you're caring for somebody who's sick, and you touch their blood, or you touch their diarrhea, or their vomit, and then you touch yourself that that's how you get it. You you just communicate the modes. You can't, it's really hard to talk to, especially an uneducated Liberian about a microscopic entity. It doesn't do much good. You can explain it all you want and show them pictures and stuff and they're kind of, you know, they don't understand the idea of the microscope and that you can see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. So I don't think that method has not worked too well. So you just need to explain how people get it you know how how people don't get it—that it's not in the air—and uh, those kind of things. Um, but you, you more explain how it affects people and how people get it rather than what it is, because what you can't see it. And you just say you can't see it, but it's real. Okay, we got one last question, then we're closing.
3: Rick, almost done. Um, as I was talking to you earlier, you know, so much uh, what we need to do can and should be done through the church. Uh, our ministry, seedliberia.org, has been asked to provide a training institute for the pastors. Uh, I think we have about 300 pastors in our network. And uh, they want help in how to deal with death and dying and grief. And we're going to hopefully get your help to add an Ebola track with that. But that's, um, that's coming from the American Bible Society. We'll have a training seminar in Franklin, Tennessee in February for anybody that's working with Ebola issues. Particularly in Africa, with pastors, and the program called uh, uh, the Healing Institute for the American Bible Society. So that's coming up. Hopefully, we'll get that word out to everybody. Uh, but go to
0: seedliberia.org. Thank you. Great. All right. Thank you, everybody. I'm, I'll, I'll hang out, I'll hang out out in the hallway for a while afterwards if people want to talk more.